Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Well, what's up, what's up, what's up? Oh, what's up? I've got a new audience, see, so I can... I'm doing it all over again. All right, James. Do, do you want me to do the voice as well? No, 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 no it's... <laughs> But it's not normally Mark just going, God, if he goes again. <laughs> Rolls eyes and looks slightly as though I'm the child in the... I, uh, I know that studio. look very well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, James King is here because uh, Mark's having a little week's off, a bit of a holiday thing. How are you doing? Very good. Yeah, it's been a while. I haven't, I haven't done this thing with you for a while. It was uh, oh, autumn, on, yeah, autumn 2012. Why? <laughs> why I why was it then? I, d- I don't know why it was then, but that's when it was. But we used to rock the airways on Radio oh, 1 as well. My God. I, you know, it, it would be weird not to hand over to Newsbeat at the end of the show. Because the, th- the great thing was Mark had decided he was too old for Radio 1 at the age of like 26. Yeah. Uh, and he handed over to you, uh, and you were like 15. <laughs> Last time I was time. actually on with Ben uh, a couple of weeks ago, this was all discussed about oh, really? the fact okay. that, that that you and Mark think I'm 15. And James Boy King. Exactly. But you do look... Well, this is great. I feel... Fantastically young. After I revealed my actual age on the show, I did kick myself because I thought I could have kept this mystery going. Yeah. But it's all over now. Uh, well, as far as everyone else is concerned, you're about 15. Good. Okay, we'll go with that. And anyone who looks on our, on the website for the Code of Conduct, the little video that we that we did, it does feature you playing a small child. <laughs> this is, this is uh, true. And it's a role that you play very, very well. Thank you. I was sort of sped up as well in a Benny Hill style, wasn't yes. I? So you're like preserved in aspic. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, right. Well, it's very nice to have you here. And it's one of our strange um, moving shows, so it's only an hour. Uh, so we just kind of float around, really. See what happens. Yeah. Um, Emma Gardner uh, has been on. I don't know how much of this will make any sense to you uh, at all. I know you were on recently, but, you know, this is all stuff that's happened uh, in the interim. Um, My own... uh, Because I mentioned last week, Mark had said something about... He'd assumed that my youngest son had been to see Warcraft. Okay. And I said no, because he he had his GCSE head on. Right. uh, And he actually basically hadn't been out the house unless he had a GCSE. So Emma Gardner says, My own child, too, is Tom is one of those GCSE students who has completely eschewed fun and flimsy stuff for the duration of the exams. Like Simon's Child 3, entirely his own doing, and we're proud of him for making such huge effort. He has compiled a, a, a things-to-do list to catch up on when it's all over, and I'm sure it's all going to be all right in the end, to quote uh, Mark. Top of the list is to induct himself properly into the Church of Wittertainment, another equally good reason for parental pride. His last exam takes place this Friday, as indeed does child, my child three. In fact, he finishes, like he finished uh, about ten minutes ago. Okay. I have no idea. What exam was it? Physics paper two. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Well, that, well, that's right. I, I annoyed him by saying, suggesting that he was actually it was divination or charms that he was doing, uh, and you know he's a proper scientist. Enough of the Harry Potterness. Uh, anyway, so he wants to induct himself into the church. His last exam is on Friday. We're planning to listen to the podcast of Friday's programme as a way of winding down after all the exam stress. His and mine, teenagers under exam pressure, are no walk in the park, as you may well know. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. I'm sure he and all exam students would love a wass-up as an acknowledgement of their efforts, if that's possible. Tom List uh, in- includes seeing Sing Street, which he missed out on because of the exams and revi- revision. Uh, and uh, mum and dad had to travel miles to find a cinema showing it after Mark's review. It might be that it's even more difficult to find I, I think you might struggle now. Incidentally, child one, says Emma, subject of my first email uh, a while back, is now 19, has a lovely boyfriend. He was doing something film-related at university. But, insert sharp, dramatic gasp here, is not a wittertainee. I'm sorry, but how can you do... How can you be anything to do with film if you're not a fully-fledged member of the church? Anyway, rest assured, I am on the case, although my zest and enthusiasm have bemused rather than persuaded him so far. Uh, My explanation of the Witter app and how it was actually nothing to do with the programme didn't further the cause, although my casual reference to 30% light loss has impressed him. So, I don't know whether that... Have you got the Witter app? I haven't actually got the Witter app, Well, now, there you go. That's something for you to do... In fact, before we start the show properly... Yeah, OK, yeah, I've got time. You're going to have to... And then uh, we'll 
will show up with an unnaturally large area of uh, of people listening in this particular uh, studio. That's very that's very remiss of you, actually. But can I just say, when yeah. you download it, and if you have any negative thoughts, it's got nothing to do with Mark and I. Okay. How, how am I going to get this? Or the BBC? Well, you just get it. <laughs> okay. Okay. You, thanks for that. You did ask for that one. Uh, Anita Foose uh, has been on as someone who grew up in Pierre, South Dakota. This is again from last week. Just. I listened with amusement to the gross over-egging by last week's correspondent from Pierre, which I assure you has never had to be completely rebuilt due to tornadoes, the way it was suggested. Incidentally, Pierre, South Dakota, is pronounced Pier. So it's written as in the French for Peter, but it's pronounced P-I-E-R, as in a boat dock. Using the French rather than the native pronunciation is the quickest way to brand yourself either culturally insensitive or a wannabe Frenchman, and I rather suspect that was not your intent says Anita. So remember, it's Pierre, South Dakota. In any event, you're both inexplicably, ex- you inexplicably expressed a reluctance to visit Pierre. Feels wrong. You're cordially invited instead to visit my hometown of Murdo, South Dakota, unless there's some other way I should have pronounced that. The population is 488, 55 miles from Pierre, and the home of an annual foreign film series hosted in our community cinema. That we could suggest this as an outside broadcast. I think the BBC would love that. I can't see anything that, that they disagree with. This, is, this sounds like classic Stephen King territory. You know, it's that kind of small town America. Yeah. There's a film festival. We're in Murdo, South Dakota. And what happens in Murdo? Well, murder happens in Murdo, South Dakota. That's what happens. Probably committed by a strange pineapple. Each month, uh, through the rather long winter, we view a selection of foreign films and then vote on which one to watch again to end the season. Not only do we get to enjoy good movies, but the winter is almost guaranteed free of funnel cloud interruptions. The random blizzard and road closings only add to the ambiance, uh, although that makes me sound like a a French sympathiser as well, Uh, engendered by film lovers who value the series so much that they would never countenance a breach of the code of conduct as they gather for each film, equipped with heavy blankets, mittens and winter coats to ensure they stay comfortably warm for the movie. What could be sweeter? Well, uh, there you go, another reference to the code. Because James is here, go back and watch how sweet and cuddly he is as a young child uh, as he appears in that, as a Benny Hill sort of caricature. So we're going to do one more here. This is from uh, Nick Ward. This is another one of our part of our foreign correspondents. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Um, If you'll remember a little while back, you had an usher in Wellington, New Zealand, who was struggling with the job requirement of having to serve food during movies. This is a trend which is being observed everywhere. I mean, that's just an obvious mistake. Here, but this particular cinema, each chair has a button, and you press the button, and then someone comes and says, what would you like? You say, I'll have a stinky pizza. Or the crunchiest thing possible. Exactly. So, and, And our usher was asking for advice because usher thought it was... Wrong, and so we suggested to say it was against her religion. Okay, uh, yeah, you can't there, really argue with that, can and you? again, therefore against her human rights, and so it, that that's kind of sorted it. Um, or his, yes, okay, I think it was a her. Anyway, I was delighted, but of course, it, this is a gender fluid program, so it doesn't matter. I was delighted to hear my hometown mentioned. I was pretty sure I knew which cinema this was, so I visited the aforementioned venue. And I saw a young woman serving a plate of food to the people next to me. I assumed this was my fellow Wittertainee. So I leant in close and said, Hello to Jason Isaacs. She stared at me completely blankly. I decided she hadn't heard, so I followed up with another phrase from the church. For reasons I cannot explain, I chose to say, Shut up, buttwad. At which point it became apparent that this was not the young woman in question. I had just said hello to Jason, shut up Butwood, to an unsuspecting, confused and increasingly terrified Usher. She hurried away and I didn't see her again. So I'd like to ask you to apologise to her on your show, but it's clear to me now she's never heard a single one of your podcasts, so... She ain't going to hear it. If someone could go into... Well, maybe you, Nick Ward, could go back and just, just explain, point in the direction of the podcast, and then it will be explained. She's missing out, though, if she's not listening. So really, you know, at the very least, maybe we get another listener. That's very true. Uh, I suppose it is worth mentioning that there is, although there is no Jason in the show, he's been quite quiet recently. I think he's concentrating on television. Uh, we do have a Shut Up Butwood movie <laughs> coming up, don't we? We have a Gerard Butler movie <laughs> coming up. And I've been looking at some of the yeah. reviews on the posters yeah, oh, as I yes. go past, and I can tell it's going to be absolutely fabulous. I mean, it's it fr- might be movie of of the week of, of the, the millennium. Yeah. It's 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 full on Jerry. He's giving it the full Butler. Is he? 
He certainly is. is He's he, not holding back. Which accent is he doing? I mean, we'll come well, to this. Well, later. how many accents has he got? Well, it's the accent. Oh, it's, it? he's doing the, the accent. The full Gerard Butler. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, so uh, everything's coming up as you're about to hear in our specially shortened edition of the program. Uh, you can actually see quite how youthful uh, James <laughs> is looking in comparison with me and everyone else who works on the show, um, because even though we're in a, a slightly different studio in the mm. BBC's Millbank suite of offices. Uh, they have, for the first time ever, uh, installed some webcams, so you you can watch via the Five Live website, uh, should you wish to. And uh, I mean, it, you're in for a treat if you have a look as well. We're talking designer here, really, aren't we? Not designer studio, what designer shirt, that kind of uh, thing. I was I was thinking more of the decor. I mean, this is you know this is sort of Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen stuff here. It is a little bit flamboyant, I think you're in. The, but it's what John Pinar insists on. Oh, is and it? Carolyn okay. Quinn, she loves it. Oh. This is the kind of thing that they absolutely insist on. They anyway, demand on. We've only got we've only got an hour. Yeah. Uh, this is because of the the changing needs of sport, obviously, and the Euro 16 coverage with Caroline starts uh, at one o'clock. So we don't have any guests, but we have some box office top ten. We have quite a number of movies uh, to review. And on last week's program, there are a whole bunch of people who had spotted some out of uh, time posters, some posters who should have been should have been taken down uh, weeks, months, years ago, but were still hanging on in there. Uh, Andrew Webster, uh, I live near Salford Central, location of the somewhat demode Hunger Games Mockingjay poster that was heavily discussed on the show last week. Following the mention of the poster on the flagship film review radio podcast thing, I thought I'd go and have a look to see if such national media exposure had prompted interest in the advertising space from any Wittertainy entrepreneurs. Perhaps an advert for the iWitter app, which I understand Mark Simon and the production staff all benefit enormously from financially. <laughs> Imagine my surprise when instead of either the vintage advert or a replacement, I saw the entire advertising structure had been removed. Is this a coincidence? Is it related to the ongoing building work that was presumably the cause of the previous ad's extended tenure? Or has Wittertainment claimed its first structural casualty? There are lots of reports about this. Uh, Richard Gilbert, as someone who's been troubled by the bafflingly outdated Mockingjay billboard at Salford Central Station for 18 months, I was mightily relieved... Uh, that following your listeners' observation, I wasn't the only one. As I made my weekly trek past the station this morning, I raised an eyebrow as I could see a small group of men in orange jackets at the foot of the sign. Imagine my utter shock two hours later on my return journey, when sure enough not only had Jennifer's tired expression been removed, but the offending billboard had gone in its entirety. Were these men in orange coats a wittertainment SWAT team righting the wrongs across the nation? Had Mark had a word with his people? Our code breakers next. This is a new development. SWAT-attainment. SWAT-attainment. It's an offshoot. Boom. An offshoot. We're going to have a hit squad of people who are going to go around and take down movie posters and make people stop talking and turn their phones off. Uh, Richard, thank you for that. Uh, Peter Urquhart, I used to work in Manchester, can attest that there was a very old Hunger Games poster at the claimed location. I can go one better. I cycle past a phone box in Aspel, a small town between Bolton and Wigan, which is emblazoned with posters advertising the rubbish Colin Farrell vehicle, Dead Man Down, which Wikipedia tells me was released in 2013. And, uh, I thought he was going to say advertising phone booth, which would have been A, older, but also B, more relevant to the phone box. Val Asker, I uh, listened to your program whilst list- walking into Colchester on a Saturday morning. I've never been inspired to email until now. Following the listener who discovered a poster for Mockingjay Part 1, I can go better. This poster for A Little Chaos, here we go. Which, uh, which I can show you there. Oh, yeah, yeah. April 2014 is still on a bus shelter in Head Street, just yards from the Colchester Odeon, a place where I spend quite a bit of time. Every time I go past the poster, I'm amazed that it's still up. I saw the film, which I enjoyed, but why advertise a film that's long gone so close to the cinema? Um, and just one more on this, just because... Clear, I mean, I imagine this means there's a problem in the advertising industry because no one has paid any money uh, to put up a new one. Stuart Peary in Aberdeen. Um, with reference to your listener last week, you saw an ad for Hunger Games, Mockingjay, part one. That was still up. I offer the picture below of a telephone box ad for oh, House at the yeah. End of the Street. I took this today appropriately at the end of the street near my work in Aberdeen. Now, uh, granted, it's not as large or prominent as MJ1, but I do believe it's older. The BBC Archive says that The Good Doctor reviewed this in September 2012, four years ago. It will not have escaped your notice. It also features Jennifer Lawrence. Coincidence or conspiracy? I missed 
uh, house at the end. Now, I, I may be wrong, but I'm thinking that was directed by former Radio 1 DJ Mark Tonderay. Is that right? Is that what it I, is? It, I mean, he's now a director. We know that. And I may, be, I may have got it wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was his. Uh, anyway, so that, that's still up. And Jill Bertels uh, has seen a poster advertising Twilight Eclipse in <laughs> Spofforth in West Yorkshire. This is six years old. Uh, combined with the fact that it was on a telephone box, made me feel as though I'd travelled back in time. I think the telephone box thing is significant, isn't it? They do seem to take longer to go away from there. I'm, I'm in Ealing quite a lot in West London. I swear there is a telephone box that has inside a, a promo, a competition, for something to do with Boy George. And I don't mean Boy George of the Voice recent series. I mean Boy George from 20-odd years ago. So they do seem to stay around for a little longer in phone booths. You're right, by the way, about House of the Industry. It was Mark Tunderay uh, who did that. Hello, Mark. Um, he wasn't at Radio, Radio 1 for very long, but he's moved on to greater and more glorious Yeah, but he'll things. always be former Radio 1 DJ Mark Tondry, even though he now works with Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's how he introduces himself. Hi, Jennifer. Yeah, I'm Mark Tondry. I used to be on Radio 1. Yeah. With James King and Simon. You remember <laughs> that? Yeah. And then she'll say, did you do the gold now? <laughs> Matthew Strange rhymes with strange. Um, Love the show, Steve, etc. Uh, in fact, I sat next to the good doctor on the train one day and mustered up the courage to say hello, and he was very friendly. Anyway, the point of this email, to go along with clergy corner uh, in your church, could we please have a green room for the dramatic theatrical types who listen to your wonderful ramblings? I'm an opera singer, and very many of my colleagues are avid listeners. You provide wonderful companionship to us on our perambulations around the world in the vain pursuit of work. The green room would need to be full of tea, coffee, gin, and brochures for the crews, which unfortunately we can't afford in our fees. Well, there are there are bursaries which you can apply for, and uh, James is going to have a, like a guest lectureship uh, position, which is thank you, which is <laughs> which is uh, in our gift, uh, and we'll give you. So, uh, box office top ten uh, this week. Uh, let's see what we make of these. Uh, Jungle Books at number ten. It's the biggest film released in 2016. Ten weeks out there, over 45 million. It's amazing pounds. that it's it's still in there. I'm pleased it is. I'm pleased it's shown some real longevity because I think it's a, a, a classy movie. John Favreau's done a very good job. Tells a great story, very luxuriously, well chosen voice cast. It is reverential to, to the source material, but it's also cheeky when it needs to be as well. I'm pleased that it's still there. I mean, it, it, number 10, after 10 weeks, I don't know if it'll be there next week, but I'm, I'm really pleased that this so far is the number one movie of 2016. Do you think that we... I know this is an old conversation, and we did have uh, John on the programme to talk about it, but um, do you think the balance was right with the music, and uh, did it need the songs, definitely? It didn't need all of the songs. Uh, I think the, the, the Bare Necessities, Bill Murray, was enough. I thought he was just going to be a hum, a little bit of a yeah, hum. Yeah, exactly. And that would have been quite funny. Yeah, and it was quite a casual, um, uh, casual way of doing Walken it, Christopher Walken song? I didn't need that. Didn't need that. No. Jungle Book, still there at number 10. Mother's Day is at number 9. Okay, it's... Um, it, it's it's not very good, uh, and it's pretty heavy-handed, and the setup is heavy-handed, and there's a lot of exposition, and and the whole Mother's Day conceit, like Valentine's Day before it and New Year's Eve before it, is a fairly flimsy and actually rather irritating hook on which to hang a whole movie. But the thing about Mother's Day that struck me is that you've got people such as uh, Julia Roberts and Kate Hudson, Jennifer Aniston, uh, Jennifer Garner even makes a, a brief appearance in it as well. It's basically the rom-com expendables. I mean, you've got the bit, you've got the big hitters of the genre. Okay, these are people who know exactly how to pitch romantic comedy, the beats and the rhythms. And there is a certain thrill from seeing all of them in one film. Um, most notably, Jennifer Aniston. She's sort of the lead role, even though it is an ensemble piece. Um, and yet again, the whole the whole thing I felt whilst watching Jennifer Aniston on this in this movie is. She's really good. She's actually really good. And she should be making better films than this. There's a moment when she meets her ex-husband's new wife, who's significantly younger than she is. And obviously it's quite an embarrassing moment. It's, a, it's an awkward moment. And she does that whole Jennifer Aniston thing where she's sort of fiddling with her hair and you know looking a bit distracted and umming and ahhing. And she just does it so well. And that's the film I want to see, about that character with a better script and really allowing her to shine. So, yes, you get a bit of a kick from seeing big rom-com names all in one film. But ultimately, I watched it thinking, I'd really want to see Jennifer Aniston do better stuff. And, it, I mean, it goes on to much bigger questions about actresses over 40 in Hollywood and the kind of scripts they're getting offered and 
whether studios want to you know, give them decent movies anymore. And that's a huge debate. If you want to see that in one film, that problem summed up in one movie, then really it's Mother's Day. See, that's the great thing about having you on the programme, James, because you get the, the slightly the, the other side of the Mother's Day debate. Even okay. though you, you mentioned Valentine's Day, that it came out at Valentine's and yeah. New Year's, it came out New Year. Yeah. And Mother's Day is not, it came out for Father's Day, you know, which is yeah. this week. It's a different day in the States, isn't it? Which is a yeah. problem. Well, that's kind of not our fault, really, no, is no. it? Uh, so Mother's Day is at number nine. Angry Birds is at number eight. It's painful. It's a painful experience. It's painful on the ears. It's painful on the eyes. It's painful on the soul. It, going back to Jungle Book, okay. So Jungle Book seems to actually really care about its material and, and, and wants to um, present the story with a manner of sophistication. Um, and that, I'm pleased, has some longevity. It's great that Jungle Book's staying around for 10 weeks. And I think people actually warm to that a lot more than something like Angry Birds, which feels a lot more throwaway and a lot more mercenary and a lot more cold-hearted and is plummeting quickly out of the top 10. It's done pretty good, but nowhere near what the Jungle Book has done. So actually, although I hated Angry Birds... I'm quite pleased to see that it doesn't really want to stick around in the top 10 and people do seem to be latching on to a much better made film if we're talking about what kids' movies are out at the moment. Are you surprised that you hated it? Uh, am I surprised that I hated it? Well, well it's, it's, it's that Mark hated Mother's Day and didn't yeah. mind Angry Birds. I know, I don't... I don't, I don't re- I, the whole thing about Angry Birds is that it's so hyperactive and relentless and yet ultimately it's entirely empty. And that was the problem I had with it, is that there's so much thrown into it and yet you come out with absolutely nothing. It's such a waste of energy. Uh, so Angry Birds is at number eight. The Boss is at number seven. Um, so I uh, I did I paid to see this uh, the other day. Really? Um, yeah, what, I like missed, an ordinary person. And like an ordinary person, Simon. Um, and I I missed the press screening and um, bought the ticket from the girl behind the counter and she told me which which screen it was in and she said um, there's no one else in there, obviously. And I thought <laughs> really I thought, that was her big talk yeah, up. I thought wow. <laughs> so even the the cinema that's booked this film have so little faith in it they didn't really expect anyone to turn up Uh, and indeed I was the only one in there which is a bit of a shame because Melissa McCarthy is a a talented comedy actress but this isn't very good this is a misfire it is plodding and it is obvious and it's unbelievable and it stretches out really wafer thin jokes about five times longer than they need to be and Peter Dinklage who is again a fine actor gives one of the most toe-curlingly bad performances I've seen this year so it isn't very good and I'm not surprised that it's not doing that well but I like Melissa McCarthy generally and when she does hook up especially with Paul Feig the director as she did with Bridesmaids and as she did with um, uh, The Heat and uh, um, a Spy last year that's when she's best so her next film is Ghostbusters with Paul Feig and I hope that's great. And I hope once again we say she's great and she has a box office hit on her hands and we remember why she's good. I worry when I see her in things like The Boss that she's probably at risk of turning into Kevin James or Adam Sandler and just, you know, losing losing the faith we once had in her. Meantime, if it's solitude that you're after, uh, you can find a, an empty screening showing The Boss. Uh, nice, The Nice Guys in number six. Really liked it. Really exciting mix of stuff. Uh, it's as dumb as you want it to be. If you want that 80s-style buddy movie, with action scenes and one-liners and macho bravado it's there or if you want something a bit smarter it's set in the movie world of LA and it's a really a snapshot of Hollywood and of filmmaking and of storytelling of the egos and the power struggles in the industry so there are a couple of layers there and I love that blend the smart and the dumb the stylish and the stupid and actually Ryan Gosling really represents that last combination because he proves in this that if needs be, he can be both cool and be a real schmuck. He he can be James Dean meets Norman Wisdom, you know, and that I didn't expect. That was the surprise that he's so good at being a klutz and, and doing the pratfalls. Shane Black, who's the writer, the director, has probably made better films, zanier films, wittier films. Um, this is, is definitely aiming for the mainstream Um Actually, it's a little disappointing that the mainstream hasn't really embraced it. It's not been a massive hit, but I hope uh, that it's got a life outside of the cinema. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is one of his more zany films, absolutely did. That's a film that people found on TV and people found on on DV and download, and it might be that The Nice Guys is the same. Uh, X-Men Apocalypse is number five. It's it's pretty much more of the same. It still centres on that same question that we've had in every X-Men movie right from the first back in 2000. Should mutants 
blend in or stand out. Uh, but when it's Michael Fassbender and Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Singer repeating that question, it's still really watchable, even after 16 years. They give it the memorable moments. And actually, the, the, the newer cast, they're the ones who are going to struggle. Actually, um, Sophie Turner is very good as, as, as Jean Grey. But, but I, if Fassbender goes and if Jennifer Lawrence goes, if Hugh Jackman goes, the series will lose its heart and will lose a lot of its guts. So that's a bit of a concern for the future. But in this one, there are some great moments. There's some great stuff in, in, in Berlin, in the nightclub scenes. Ali Sheedy of War Games and Breakfast Club fame turns up as a teacher in 1983. Great to see her in there. Um, and there's a lot in it about mental battles, really, as much as physical battles. So it does cover old ground, doesn't do anything particularly new, but it's enough fun. And you know what? There have been six X-Men films, not counting the spin-offs, and they've all done really well, and they've all delivered something, and that's pretty impressive. 16 years, wow. Exactly. Uh, X-Men Apocalypse at number five, Warcraft, the beginnings at number four. It's uh, it's it's a bit odd. The, the tone is a bit inconsistent uh, sometimes it's it's cool and gritty and sometimes it's camp and it's silly i'm not sure the studio stuff works entirely well with the cgi stuff and it probably goes on too long and i did struggle to work out who the hell was Dur- do you do warcraft Dur- are you a, are you a player Dur- no. no so i didn't know about medieve and guldan and all the fantastic names and i did struggle a bit working out exactly who was who however there's definitely something there there's definitely swagger and spectacle and attitude and some of the performances are good which is tough to do in this kind of movie toby kebble is really good paul the pattern's really good and it hasn't done that brilliantly in america but it's done very well in china so the industry is still a bit undecided at the moment whether this is a blockbuster or whether it's an honorable failure i like duncan jones i think he's got ambition and he's got a vision and he's got a style and that makes up for the more run-of-the-mill moments in the film. And the top three, Alice Through the Looking Glass at three. It's actually better than the last one. That's that's really? Yeah, it's actually better than the last one. I think because there's a much better balance this time around between the special effects and the storytelling. So you're not... The, the special effects aren't overwhelming the story this time around. It feels a lot less indulgent. And because of that, you get to notice just how great Helena Bonham Carter is, just how great Lindsay Duncan is playing Alice's mother. And the costumes are great. Colin Atwood did the costumes and the, the real kind of steampunk look to a lot of it. So the sets and the look and the design really pops. Maybe it doesn't bear that much resemblance to Lewis Carroll's original story, um, but I think it largely gets away with it. There is enough colour and pace and zing to get by. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows is at number two. Simon Andrews on this email. Turtles 2 is one of the laziest pieces of filmmaking I've had the misfortune to waste my time on since the car crash that was taken three. It's aimed at the younger market, I accept that, but the level of effort put into it verges on insulting. I just about forced myself to tolerate the movie containing what seemed to be a competition in buffoonery between the world's most inept police officers and least lethal ninjas. The total abandonment of the laws of physics during the aircraft sequence and the blatant Transformers product play but the notion that Megan Fox is a skilled master of guile and disguise was one step too far for me. What about you? I totally agree. I'd, someone described Michael Bay the other day as the Donald Trump of filmmaking, which uh, oh, really? kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, I, it's just junk food and horrible and mean-spirited, actually. I think, I think the, the correspondent there said lazy as well, and there is a real laziness about it children deserve better there's sometimes the idea that oh it's just for kids you know don't you don't have to make it too great it's just for kids it's not oscar winner but why not make it great Uh, and the uk number one is me before you it's it's not without its problems it's not without its controversies but it's clearly resonating with audiences here and in america as well doing very well in the states because ultimately the message cuts through the more questionable elements and that message is about listening and respecting and believing in those you love and that's a very charming thing to champion and i think sam claflin is a very charming leading man yes you could pick holes in the plot the convenience of some of the situations in the plot i like bubbly people amelia clark in this is a jacuzzi of bubbliness she is just bubbly to the nth degree just relentlessly smiley and ditzy that that goes a long way a little goes a long way but to see a low budget british romantic drama at number one, connecting with a lot of people, that's a real achievement. Lindsay Trickett on an email, as a long-term listener of your programme and being a physically disabled person who actually enjoyed me before you, I thought it was time to write. I was introduced to your show by my older sister, Kate Nags. She has now left your church in favour of knitting podcasts. 
She doesn't knit a podcast. Yeah, I, it's a yeah, podcast I wondered how you would do about, that. About knitting. Anyway, we're going to try and work back. Anyway, I'm trying to explain myself here without giving away any spoilers. I may be a little biased because I'm a fan of Jojo Moyes. Her books are so much more edgy than the usual chiclet. Jojo Moyes based the book on a story she'd heard on the radio about a real-life case. A young man who had similar injuries to Will following an accident and made the same decisions he made. I remember at the time feeling very angry with this individual, feeling that he was being selfish and giving up where the rest of us disabled folk should just uh, just make the best of it. I have since thought about it and concluded he should have had the right to make his own decision on how he wanted to live his life. I don't think that the point of the book or the film was ever meant to be as black and white as saying that life as a disabled person is not worth living. I was born with my disability, thanks to my family and friends and my involvement with the Writing for the Disabled Association. I've always had a positive attitude towards it. I do, however, think that it must be so much harder to accept if you have known a non-disabled life before a life-changing incident, although I suspect that Will's attitude to his disability is not shared by the majority. I've heard critics say that the film shows how a non-disabled person can boost their own ego by caring for a disabled person. This is not how I saw the relationship between Will and Lou. Uh, Lindsay, thank you very much indeed for the email. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Let's get in a review uh, before the news and sport, James. Um, let's talk about Tale of Tales, which is co-written and directed by Matteo Garoni. Had a big foreign language hit with Gomorrah a few yes, years back. Yes, Toby Jones was telling us about it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, he's so good in this. Um, loosely based on three fairy tales, popularised by the Italian poet in the 16th century, Gian Battista Basile. And it's essentially three stories that intertwine. So three different fables, adult fables, though. Um, these aren't kids' bedtime stories. They're, they're horrific and erotic. And the first one is the story uh, of a queen played by Salma Hayek, who's desperate to have a baby, follows the advice of a, a strange soothsayer who turns up in, in court one night. Then there's also the Toby Jones story. He's, a, he's also a king who uh, ignores his own daughter's wishes and desires because he is so caught up in caring for of all things simon a flea a flea of course um and then the third story is, is vincent cassell's story he's another royal in in the region whose womanizing ways see him involved with a couple of local crones i think we can call them uh, who dream of being young and beautiful one of whom is shirley henderson she has probably my favorite voice in acting so here she is in a clip from tale of tales i don't know what happened i fell asleep and when I woke up, I had changed my skin. What do you mean? Oh. I changed my skin. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You're so beautiful. Young. Dora. Dora. From now on, you don't have to worry about a thing. I'll take care of you. Anything you want. It'll be yours. Laura. I have to go now. No. I'll come back. I'll come back. But remember, this has to be our secret. Not a word to anyone. Adora, wait, wait. It, it is a beautiful film. They're beautiful to look at, to drink in, the Italian locations, the castles, the forests, the costumes. The cinematography is by a guy called Peter Suchitsky, who's worked with David Cronenberg a lot and Ken Russell and Tim Burton. And it really revels in that that atmosphere, that medieval atmosphere. So jesters and fire eaters and, and wandering players and magic, a really sumptuous film to look at. Um, also great performances as well. Selma Hayek, it's not a dialogue-heavy performance from her. She does a lot of acting through through looks and expressions, really, just little nuances and movement of the eyes. Really subtle and tortured performance. Toby Jones, wow. I mean, not many people could make the story of a man obsessing over a flea believable, but he does. I think it's a brilliant piece of casting. And Shirley Henderson, who we heard in that clip, I think ties into that, because these Shirley Henderson and, and Toby are both character actors and there's a certain eccentricity to about a lot of their performances and they are the perfect choices for this because it is an eccentric film it's a surreal film it's a weird film and you need to get the right people to make that believable and for me they absolutely did i think it's got a lot going for it it is an adult fairy tale aimed at grown-ups it's not about the franchise or the big audience or the you know the um theme park ride or anything like that this is grown-up adult fairy tale stuff 
deals with big themes, regret and the consequences of your choices. And it is often shocking. Watching Salma Hayek tuck into the bleeding heart of a dead sea monster is not, not for five-year-olds. And not something you see every day. It's not something yeah. you see every day. But I was utterly enraptured by it. Uh, and and Toby was it was Toby was on last week and that yeah. podcast is uh, is still available and he clearly had had a fabulous time and he came out in the interview that the the original title of those of those stories is, is something like for the young ones it translates yeah. as yeah. for the children mm. Mm. well no. <laughs> no 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 I really don't I don't think so is he that, looks as if he's having a fun time as well he does a quick contrasting word James from Megan McCarthy uh, we were just talking about Tale of Tales before uh, before okay. the news I'm appalled by the rave reviews of Tale of Tales. I thought it would be right up my alley, dark fairy tales, sex, period costumes, and so took off from work early to bike hurriedly downtown for a screening of it during the Philadelphia Film Fest. This was last October. Eight months' worth of brushing later, the bitter taste of disappointment has still not left my mouth. While I will concede the costumes were beautiful, the acting was so awful I couldn't make myself care. I stuck with it for the longest 45 minutes of my life, feeling like I was watching a bunch of Ren Fair nerds I'd hung out with in school. This is Renaissance Fair, by the way. Uh, and a Renaissance Fair is apparently quite a thing, where, okay. where uh, it's like a weekend gathering, uh, and they say, right, we're, we're gonna be, it's going to be Queen Elizabeth uh, time. This is in America they do this. Or it's going to be Henry VIII, or maybe it's going to be like Versailles. Uh, so is thing. this like the people who dress up in, yes. in the UK and re- recreate battles? It's a bit of cosplay, I right. think, okay. anyway. Uh, but but Megan says it's as if they suddenly had a windfall of about $50,000 and spent it all on corsets and big skirts. By the way, if anyone suggested going to a, uh, a weekend fair based on the current TV series of Versailles, I think you'd just have to say, Mm-mm, no, thank you very much indeed. So let's do some stuff that's brand new and out this week. Gods of Egypt is a $140 million sword and sandals fantasy epic. This about, is going to be great. Of course, about battling ancient Egyptian deities, Horus and Set, played by surely the two people who immediately spring to mind when you think about ancient Egyptian deities, namely Danish eye candy, Nikolai Kostawaldau, and Gerard Butler. This so-called whitewashing of the story, the fact that you have mainly Caucasian Westerners playing North Africans, has attracted a fair bit of controversy, as you can imagine. Directed by Alex Proyas of iRobot and The Crow fame, he's also not a happy man because there's been a bit of a critical backlash uh, against Gods of Egypt in the States, where it came out a few months ago. Came out in February. He's described critics as vultures, which is very nice. Um, And then the box office in the States hasn't been very good either. So, all in all... The gods, ancient, Egyptian or otherwise, haven't really been smiling on this. Finally, we get to see what all the fuss is about. So here's a clip. This is Jeffrey Rush as Ra the sun god, obviously, and the one and only Jerry B in Gods of Egypt. What do you want? Immortality. Immortality awaits us all in the afterlife. I don't want to die. I want to live forever down there in the lands i conquered my kingdom this should be my reward how the only way to achieve this is unthinkable you would unleash chaos upon creation you would destroy everything not destroy reshape i will take your place but it won't be sitting on some damn boat When I asked you uh, a long time ago now, it feels, what kind of accent Gerald Butler is doing in this movie, and you said he's doing the Gerald Butler voice, that's what you meant. That's the full-on Gerald Butler voice. It's actually a pretty special film. It is a bona fide, you don't see it very often, roll up, roll up, folks, this hasn't happened in a while, turkey. I mean, it it really is a proper 100% stinker. Uh, Dated and, and... unintentionally funny and camp and I actually sat there thinking is this for real because this is 2016 this is the era of uh JJ Abrams and the Hunger Games and Marvel and all these big sexy exciting slick blockbusters and Gods of Egypt is trying to compete with that that's exactly what it the kind of movies it has in its sights wanting to be a new modern franchise but it's so wooden and it's so ill-conceived however what i will say is this because it's so gobsmackingly bad 
I actually started to enjoy it. Things like this don't come around very often. And in a way, that's something is that's like a, a, something morbidly fascinating because it's such a clunker, because it's such a misfire. And I don't think we've seen anything quite like this for a while. It's not often that you get to see a film that's sort of 50% 300 and 50% carry-on Clio. I mean, it's it's just <laughs> bonkers. So you get like Chadwick Boseman, for example, who's sachets across the desert sands like he's RuPaul on, on the runway. You get Jerry Butler, who who just wanders into scenes like he's turn up from an all-night lock-in at a, a, at a paisley boozer you know <laughs> and you get um well we heard him in that clip you get um jeffrey rush is rather sun god who i think is channeling alistair sim oh really yeah uh, and and i think that sums it up actually people like uh jeffrey rush there's a lot of good people in this but you get the feeling they're just turning up for for a bit of money for a bit of a lark there's a lot of hammy actors just turning up for a few minutes for a bit of fun if this had been made 30, 40 years ago, it probably would have had Marlon Brando or Oliver Reed in it, just doing it for a bit of beer money. It's that kind of a film. Brian Brown. Brian Brown is barely in it. I could only think of Rod Hull when I saw him. He's like channeling the spirit of Rod Hull. It is bonkers and bad. Rufus Sewell, who likes to turn up in these kind of movies, uh, obviously turns up in this movie. And he just raises his eyebrow enough for you to think hang on, Rufus Sewell knows. He's in on this joke. He knows that actually this isn't very good, but if we just sit back, enjoy the ride, have fun with how ridiculous it all is, there is something there. And that was ultimately what I had to do. Some of it is boring. All of it is very stupid. But if you embrace that ridiculousness, it does make it much more entertaining. But it is very camp and it's very silly and it's very OTT, and we I don't want these kind of films every week, and certainly Hollywood wouldn't, because it would bankrupt studios left, right, and centre. But every now and then, something that is so weirdly out of place and out of sync with the mood is quite entertaining. Who takes the blame? I mean, is, it, is it bad script? Is it bad directing? Uh, I know you're going to be characterised as a vulture here. but Yeah, you know. well, I, you know, I think uh, there have been plenty of other vultures having a go at Gods of Egypt before me. It's it's a bit of both. I think ultimately these things start with the script and there's a lot of very clunky dialogue in it. There's just not really a, a, an idea about what sort of moods to have. Um, and I think you have to decide from the off where you're going with this. Is this pantomime or is it cool? And this doesn't really know. Uh, Gods of Egypt is the worst movie ever. This is a fact, according to AD. Uh, oh, OK. It's to the point. Uh, Ryan, uh, on this slightly more detailed, if filmgoers thought that they wouldn't make films like this anymore, then they're in for a shock when they see Gods of Egypt. Bad writing, wooden acting across the board, with the exception of... Uh, Elo is it Elodie Young? I don't know. Anyway, apparently Elodie Young is really is, is really good. Repetitive direction, terrible effects that makes the Star Wars prequels look photorealistic by comparison. You know how bad the film is when they reveal that the Earth is flat instead of round? It feels like the close relative of both Batman and Robin and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. But to be honest, it makes Clash of the Titans remake look like Lawrence of Arabia. Anyway, it's not going to go well, is it, for Gods of Egypt? It, it's not going well, and unfortunately there's a lot of money riding on it, so it's not just a film that will disappear and, and people won't really you know, ever think about it again. It's, it's a big movie, and there were big expectations. Is it the kind of thing that might make some money when it goes to streaming or when it goes to DVD? Well, obviously or... it's quite difficult to, to lose a lot of money because there are so many ancillary ways of, of paying for a film now, whether it is TV rights or DVD rights or, or streaming rights. So it's, it's quite a feat if you do end up losing a lot of money. Uh, this will have an audience somewhere because it's there's big names in it people will be intrigued uh i think ultimately though it's gonna it could it could survive as something that people watch and laugh along with and quote along with it's sort of the flash gordon type thing i mean flash gordon is actually much better than this but that's how that survived because people embraced it as a cult film uh, so that is uh, Gods of Egypt. More movie releases in just a second. Let's just do a word on TV movie of the week. Uh, you have uh, made some suggestions. Rory Forrest says it has to be Smokey and the Bandit, the movie of my childhood that has defined my closest friendship. We reference this movie to this day, and even though I can easily recite all the dialogue, it's still hugely enjoyable. Surely this is the mark of a great film. Ben says there is only one clear choice, and that is K-Pax. No reason needed, because it's K-Pax. So I would say 
it's Capex. Uh, Nadim says, I'd go with Smokey just because it's light, relaxed nonsense, but I think James is going to go for Django. And Dominic Skelton, I think I'll go with Django Unchained, but I must confess a certain fondness for the world's fastest Indian great story, and Hopkins brings his eccentric A-game. What is our TV movie of the week? I'm going for Back to the Future 2. This is on Sunday at 2 o'clock on ITV2. But that was the weakest of the three. But there's a reason for it. It's a very personal reason. But uh, this is when Elizabeth Shue came on board the franchise. So Jennifer had been played by Claudia Wells in the first one. Elizabeth Shue came on board and took over that that role for parts two and three because they were filmed back to back. And the other week, I interviewed Elizabeth Shue and she was really great and really smart and really lovely and really helpful. So I'm being very biased and choosing it because Elizabeth Shue is in it. And when does that go out? It was for uh, written. It was for a book. No, 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 no. Not, <laughs> not, not, not when does your interview go? When does the movie go out? When does Back to the Future two go out? You know, <laughs> Sunday at two on ITV two. There you go. That'll be the one. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, so uh, are we going to do Conjuring two next? Why not? Well, I'm intrigued by this, so you need to I- explain here. So this opened on Monday, actually. Um, so if you've already seen it, drop us a line. It came out in the states last week. Where actually it, it did incredibly well and and, and beat uh, Warcraft in its first weekend. Been doing very well, I hear, in the last few days in the UK. In fact, they've already announced another spin-off. So Annabelle was the spin-off to the first Conjuring film. They've already announced that there'll be a spin-off to this sequel called The Nun. So The Nun is the main ghost, creepy antagonist in, okay. in Conjuring Two. Uh, and Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson are back. They're the psychic investigators, uh, Lorraine and Ed Warren. And they begin the film by looking into the Amityville haunting, so mid-70s in America. Then the action moves forward to 1977, and they head across the Atlantic to Enfield, Enfield, North London, where, according to the film, everyone says, Cool blimey, let's have a fag. Cool blimey, he's had an hemorrhage, and speaks like they're Mm -hmm. from EastEnders. Uh, And the Warrens set to work investigating the infamous... Enfield poltergeist. So this is uh, children from the Hodgson family. Really happened late seventies. Children from the Hodgson family who claim to be hearing strange noises and demonic voices, and that claim they're levitating from their beds. Hit the headlines in the British press in the late seventies. Arguably as many skeptics about it as there were believers. So that's the setup for the Conjuring Two, and this is the interesting clip that I'm sure we'll be talking about afterwards. Here it is. No, this is not your house. Now, what's your name? Knock, knock. Very well. Who's there? Bill. 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 Bill who? My name is Bill Wilkins, and I'm 72 years old. What do you make of that voice? He sounds confused. Is he senile? The voice on this tape is coming from an 11-year-old girl. See, Hader in Birmingham and a whole bunch of other people. Yes, why is that clip relevant? Is it just me, or was the demon septuagenarian doing Simon's real voice? Because, I mean, I occasionally I have to lapse into my real voice. There you go, is, there, there it is. That's it. But it's more like Joe Pasquale than anything else, rather than a, anything in The Conjuring 2. Anyway, I'm not a performing monkey, so uh, I'm quite intrigued by this thing. Uh, it's it's quite an odd film. There's there's quite an odd mix of, of different things going on. Sometimes it takes itself very seriously. Sometimes there are some really out-of-place jokes in it. Sometimes it's very fast and energetic and pacey. And then there are other moments that are really painfully slow. There's a lot of people walking slowly around darkened rooms, taking about one step every ten seconds. You've got slow, eerie music playing slowly on the soundtrack. And actually, for the first hour or so, the Warrens are still in the States. So the stuff is happening in Enfield, but they're still back in the States dealing with the nun. Uh, so there's a quite a clumsy split between the two stories so it's almost like it can't quite make up its mind on what to focus so instead it just throws lots of things in and, and hopes for the best but maybe about halfway through the film some of that starts to stick and there are plenty of creepy moments in it the nun is is terrifying i was sat next to mark watching this he did lean over to me and whisper that's marilyn manson which it's not, but it does look like Marilyn Manson, and that sort of put me off a little bit. I know he was breaking the code, but he it was, was just a whisper. He was talking in the middle it of the film. It was just a quick whisper, three words. It's it was fine. Um, 
so, but it is still creepy and the attention to detail is very good you actually see some real photos from the Hodgson family at, at the end of the movie and you can see that, that the way they've constructed the sets you know the bedrooms are the same and they've got the same Starsky and Hutch posters on the wall and the clothes are identical so there's good attention to detail maybe a little bit in your face there's probably one chunky 70s cardigan too many in this but attention to detail is good and the jumps and the bumps and the scares do work they're not new they're not clever they're not reinventing anything but they still work it's just that going back to right i said right at the start it's mixed in with a few weird mood changes that don't quite add up there's a moment where patrick wilson starts serenading everybody with a rendition of i can't help falling in love with you the elvis song and you just think, wow, where, where did that come from? This doesn't really sit anywhere in the film. It's not boring, but it's not The Witch or It Follows or The Babadook or the, the classic horror movies of recent years. But it's not bad. David Keegan on Conjuring, too nicely directed and acted, couldn't help feeling I'd seen the movie before. And that's because I'd seen The Enfield Haunting last year with Timothy Spall, which is on telly. Maybe not a bad thing, but left me feeling a bit short-changed. Guy Balance saw this in Telford on Monday. Uh, I love the first one, and although not as good, it's still one of the best horror films of the year so far. Only downside was the gentleman in front of me who munched his way and rustled through three large packets of crisps, but I inflicted karma on him by leaning forward and whispering, my house, in his ear. But there it is, again. You can't deny it. It just comes out when I'm not concentrating. Rebecca Cradden, there are so many bad horror films being made these days, I always enjoy one that tries a little bit harder. So here we have Ed and Lorraine Warren on another epic journey of ghostbusting. If you thought it couldn't get any scarier than the first one, then you're most definitely wrong. You'll jump, you'll scream and scream again. It's not perfect, it has its fair share of cliches, but it's damn entertaining. Do not miss this movie. Thank you for reading, Rebecca. Uh, right, so we've got about four minutes. I think that James. gives us time to talk about Barbershop 3. They probably want to make four so they can release a box set and call it the Barbershop Quartet. Good. Thank you. Uh, once again, it sees Ice Cube as Calvin, the Chicago barbershop owner, plus the usual regulars. So you've got Cedric the Entertainer as ageing snipper Eddie. You've got Eve, you've got Anthony Anderson, Sean Patrick Thomas. And this time round... It also includes Nicki Minaj, whose bottom is so relentlessly focused on in this film, it needs its own credit. It's unbelievable. Uh, this time around, Calvin is trying to stop the, the violence that, that is so ruining the south side of Chicago that he loves, and they all come up with a plan. This is Barbershop 3. I'd like to say something. Look, Eddie, you once said that the barbershop is the pillar of the neighborhood. Damn right. So we use that, right? We turn the shop into our safe space for the weekend. Right? Neutral grounds where both sides can come together peacefully. I like that. Yeah. Turn this place into Switzerland. Exactly. Ain't no way in hell the South Side is ever going to resemble any parts of Switzerland. Look, we could try to get both sides to come together and agree to a ceasefire. And then we can get the Chicago celebs to tweet about it and talk about it, get them to support. That's good, Gerard. You know what? He's right. That means that we have to give them something to see. Yeah, maybe we could just give away free gifts, like a radio promotion. Yes. Uh, And who's supposed to pay for these free gifts? Dre's right. We need some incentive to bring people out. Yeah. I don't want to state the obvious here, but this is a barbershop. We could just do what we already do for free. It's pretty much like the other ones. Uh, it, the, the plot is, I think it's fair to say, casual and loose. What does that mean, casual? The, the, it's not exactly high octane. Okay. A lot of the film is people sat around the barbershop chatting, hanging out, talking. And that's kind of fun. You know, Eddie is, is a funny character and they do manage to get in some relatively insightful conversations in there about female equality and stereotypes and gun control and it's it's a simple watch i mean it's mainly just in one location in the actual shop and it's it's inoffensively uneventful i actually think the most interesting thing about this and i this is how it does differ a bit to the others i think is that it's so specifically about chicago it's actually it's even more specific it's about the south side of chicago which is the more ethnically diverse part the more financially diverse part of the city and there are references to areas and to organizations and to charities that sometimes it, it, you do feel like you're watching local tv there seems to be very little concession made to anyone outside of the illinois area and it's at, at a time when a lot of films are thinking so massively and globally and thinking about we've got to appeal to the chinese market and we've got to appeal to this market this actually is really insular it's like they don't want to appeal to anybody outside of the city of chicago 
Although when you watch the end credits, it says filmed entirely in Atlanta, Georgia. Like, oh, really? <laughs> this is like a celebration of Chicago and you don't even film it there. Look, it's not some great artistic or, or comedic masterpiece, but I think the whole appeal of the barbershop films is that they have that easygoing charm about them, like you're dropping in on old friends and this still has that charm. But there will be a lot of references, unless you're a Chicago native, there'll be a lot of references that you just won't get. See, I haven't seen uh, Barbershop 1. Or 2. Or Barbershop 2. Or so Beauty Shop, the spin-off. How much of a disadvantage am I at? Not really. Mm. Not really. Because because they are just people chatting and having fun. And like I said, the plot isn't exactly tight. I think you can just uh, drop in and find it very easy to understand. Well, very good, James. You see, you're just, you're just the master. And you, you, know, you step up and you get in the shoes and everything is perfectly fine. The, the legendary DMs. I don't think I'm going to bother with Gods of Egypt. It's it's a it's a weird thing, and I was having this conversation with a friend about do we have time anymore to do films that are so bad they're good? Because actually, now I think, look, life's short. I just want to see good films. I don't want to see something that's so bad it's good. I just want to see something that's so good it's good. Uh, God of Gods of Egypt, I would only recommend if you can handle that sort of approach. Go in knowing that it's terrible, but you might have a laugh because it is so terrible. The thing, you have to be a little bit flush, I would think, to, to, to blow the amount of money that it costs to go to the cinema and to, to see something that you know is going to be terrible. Well, you do, although I remember doing it when I was young. I went to see Street Fighter, the legendary Jean-Claude Van Damme, Kylie Minogue uh, movie from the 90s. Together at and, last. And we all went deliberately... When we knew that it was going to be terrible, we'd read the reviews, we knew it was awful, but we went as a laugh. But I admit, that's not something you can do every week, is it? Yeah, so it's the kind of thing that will hang around the director's neck for a while. By the way, um, so, so Mark's not here this week, but he has started reassuring people and telling everybody yeah. that all things are going to be well. If someone came to you for relationship advice, would you be similarly reassuring? It's just there are a number of people. I just want to mention Kay and... Um, Who's this? And uh, okay, all the anonymous people who've been writing in, and basically they just want to be told by Mark that everything is going to be all right. So I'm just going to chance my arm here, James. Is everything going to be all right? Everything's going to be all right. There you go, and it sort of counts from you because you're younger and <laughs> and more optimistic. There you go. But I do, but I also apologise for it not being Mark. Um, hopefully, the, the the next seven days will. will James, stop. Be okay. It's fine. We, yeah. your reassurance has reassured us Good, it's a very good thing so uh, because we had a shortened programme uh, because of the sport which is everywhere uh, oh, I've got a text, hang on let me just... is it Mark saying everything will be alright? no it's not, it's from child 3 who has just finished his physics GCSE, in fact this is the end of the GCSEs okay? yeah. so I said how did it go and he's now just letting me know and now he can go and see Warcraft he can, but rather confusingly his text to me is a strawberry <laughs> what what does that mean? It's a, it's an emoji strawberry. Yeah, is that some kind of youth? Or is it a ra- uh, or is it a ra- no? It's not right. Ra- if it was a raspberry, I would take offence. Obviously, that's what. Now I'm going to have to. I have to. I don't know what that means. What would you? So the if the conversation has gone, how did your last paper go? Yeah, answer. I know. I've got a it. Strawberry. What? What's the answer? Sweet. Perfect. Do you reckon? You see, your your could f- be. It, uh, it has to be that. Yeah. It's a good thing, though. Strawberries are great. That's not a bad thing. It's a, it? Yeah, there's no negative strawberry uh, story that we can think of or twist. No. Okay. All right, that's very good. I'm reassured. Thank you very much indeed. Sweet. Nice with cream, all that kind of stuff. Wimbledon, all that. Uh, so because we, we were super short uh, today, we, uh, we need to pick up some of the slack. So there's something else that you wanted to do for us. Yes, Where You're Meant to Be is a brilliant and warm and funny documentary by Paul Fegan about Aidan Moffat. So Aidan Moffat was formerly of a, a cult Scottish band, Arab Strap, and he did a tour and an album a couple of years ago where he covered and updated several traditional folk songs, gave them a modern twist, like an urban twist to pay homage to them but also just to make them a little bit more relevant to today so what you have in the movie is is a travelogue really as he and his band journey around scotland playing very small and unusual venues and celebrating tradition and what these these old folk songs mean to people and the memories that they hold at the same time as giving them just a bit of a contemporary kick up the backside coupled with that the movie is also about aiden's relationship with someone called sheila stewart legendary Scottish folk singer who actually made a lot of these songs famous in the first place back in the 50s and the 60s Uh, and he wants to talk to her about what he's doing because she's incredibly influential 
she's not happy with her his new approach she doesn't want her songs to be updated so the narration of the film is like Aidan writing a letter to Sheila sort of trying to explain why he's done this to her songs uh, anyway this is a bit of Sheila Stewart herself singing uh, the Scottish folk song The Parting Glass Oh kind of friends and companions come join me in rhyme and lift up your voices in chorus with mine. Let's drink and be merry, all grief to refrain. For we may and might never all meet here again. It's actually yeah, we have to say something at this yes, point just yeah. for the legal reasons. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really moving. It's a really moving film about folk music, the power of real folk music, music that has strong roots and strong storytelling, strong associations. And they, there's a line early on in the film where they say, this is music where the delivery is is more important than hitting the right notes. But I think crucially, it's not stuffy. Um, it, it is moving, but the music and, and the people in it are really funny. And the songs are re- not that one particularly, but there are other ones that are really bawdy and earthy. Uh, and music docs, you know, they're to a penny, really. There's a lot of them about. But this one does take a new approach and it does really get to the to the heart of why this folk music is so resonant. And ultimately, it's about someone who wants to pay tribute to to great folk music. And they may be updating the songs, they may be changing the songs a little bit, but they have the utmost respect for those songs. Uh, I just want to mention uh, a couple of uh, emails about one of the movies that Mark talked about last week, because a lot of stuff didn't actually make it into the top ten, but the yes, movies that he yeah. really loved are things like Embrace of the Serpent. Yeah. Uh, Michael Burrows uh, says, Thank you so much for last week's review of Embrace of the Serpent. I've been enraptured by this film ever since I saw it at the William & Mary Global Film Festival in Williamsburg, Virginia. I just wanted to point out something I felt no review of the film would be truly complete without mentioning, and that is it's in black and white. Mark mentioned that the film tries to de de-exoticise the Amazon without mentioning that the gorgeous black and white cinematography is absolutely instrumental to this goal. Depicting the Amazon on colour film always lends itself to white viewers going, oh, look how pretty and colourful and strange everything is. Taking away the colour deprives the Amazon of its defining feature in the white imagination and leaves us only with the forest as the uh, Karamakati see it. I hope I got that right. A world, nothing more or less. Without this visual device, the film would still be magnificent on the strength of its script and performances, but it would be much less thematically cohesive. Uh, And this one from an anonymous but happy Brooklynite. I've very little to add to Mark's glowing words. Oh, I could leave it there. Except that the greatest achievement of this movie is the reversal of perspective about which Mark spoke so eloquently. This movie immerses us so very deftly into the perspective of a character for whom the whole of civilization has effectively ended, and only global anarchy and madness remain, making this feel formally like an apocalyptic road movie based on true events, and you can put that on the poster. Also in the same way that you wouldn't see Chef on an empty stomach, be wary of seeing this movie in a hot theatre, as this may well be the most luscious and tactile water cinematography in film history. There you go. Very good. Are you tempted? Absolutely. All right. So uh, we have one more thing to do uh, before our business uh, is complete, and that is to bring you our DVD of the week. Do you like this music? Oh, I mean, it's just the greatest, isn't it? I love it. So the summer of sport is in full swing. If you've been inspired to take part in some kind of sport or other, why not get those arms in shape by putting your ever-expanding DVD, Blu-ray, VHS, Laserdisc and Betamax collection in a couple of bin bags and do some bicep curls with them. Or, if you're not keen on sport... Gaffer tape your DVDs together to form a protective wall between your TV screen and your eyes. So which DVD will James King pick this week? Is it more difficult to work out what James likes than Dr. Mark? Let's find out. So your suggestions are like this. Keith Fraser says, Oldie Choice, Enemy Mine. New release choice, Trumbo or Evolution. Shout out to great film I've already seen, Out of Sight. John Mills says, Cape Fear, I think, or Enemy Mine, two classic movies. Chris Skelp says, I am Belfast. 
If there was ever a film that ticks all the boxes for DVD of the week, then this is it. A poetic documentary about real people made by Mark Cousins. It's absurd. Adam S. Leslie. My guess is the trippy evolution, like a French under the skin, but without the shocking moments of violence which made its British counterpart so disconcerting. It's still hypnotic and disquieting in its own way, though, and well worth a look. And Louis Samuel Joseph Brooks says, Haven't seen the Sweeney colon Paris, but I'd pick it just to hear those brilliant French Sweeney catchphrases. Again, this is where we've got Nicola, our French engineer, to voice some of the catchphrases. Can we do those again? All right, here's, here's Nicola doing some of those again. Ferme-la. Je vais t'écraser tellement fort qu'il va falloir que tu grimpes pour faire tes lacets. Enfile ton pantalon. T'es en état d'arrestation. I think that was really good. It's beautiful. Do you remember that? It's poetry. Do you, you ever see that old French, that French movie, Lion? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, and it just that was kind of gritty, mm, uh, tough stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think Nicolas sounds as though he's from Lion. That's what I think. I've never met Nicolas, but now you've told me that, I don't think I ever want to meet him. Well, I know he's he's a very cute and cuddly person. He just sounds like a gangster there, where he's where he's doing his he's doing his gritty street voice. That's what he, anyway, what is our DVD when, when of the we, week? Actually, when we tweeted about the DVD of the week, someone said they didn't even, I don't think they even nominated a, a DVD. They just said, thanks, now I've got that blooming music in my head. Yes. It is an earworm, isn't it? Uh, my DVD of the week is Trumbo, which stars Brian Cranston as the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, blacklisted in Hollywood for his socialist leanings in the late 40s. Brian Cranston, we know, got a lot of attention for his performance and uh, awards nominations. Rightfully so. But I would say also look out for John Goodman, who plays a character called Frank King in this, who's a low-rent filmmaker, producer, who's pretty much the only person who will give Trumbo any work. And John Goodman has been doing this kind of role for a long time, the eccentric supporting role, but he just still has that ability to up the tempo of the film as soon as he's on screen and grab our attention and increase the charisma levels. And just brilliant. And the whole thing really is a very interesting portrait of a bleak time in Hollywood. So our DVD of the week is... Trumbo. All right. Uh, James, very nice to see you again. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, whatever your skin product uh, you're using, you need to pass it on. Thank you very much. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.